Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. All right, good morning. We're going to start a Christmas uh, series every year. We obviously we do a Christmas series in pretty much every church. It's uh, just that important of a holiday. I think sometimes as, as uh, preachers, the group of us, sometimes we sort of almost in some ways fear Christmas because it's like, how do you preach about Christmas again? And next year, I'll have to do it again. And the year after that. And I think sometimes us preachers, it's sort of this gnawing anxiety. What am I going to preach on Christmas next year? But anyway, this year I was praying about it. And uh, I want to ground the Christmas story uh, in its context, in the bigger context of the biblical story. And I think that's really important because Christmas has become such a big holiday. And for good reasons. I love it. We have two Christmas trees at home. Uh, and actually, just a little, some of you will want a parenting tip there. We actually have made our kids pay for the live Christmas tree this year. That's a whole other story. But uh, really good stuff. We're starting to save money. But uh, um, anyways, we, you know, Christmas trees and we're blaring the Christmas music. Just everyone. Love the holiday. Love the holiday. It's a wonderful holiday. Wonderful time for family. Yada, yada, yada. All that sort of stuff. Okay, um, but in that, sometimes I think what happens is Christmas becomes such a story unto itself that it just comes out of its context. It just becomes this cute story. It's like, uh, you know, it's just baby Jesus in the manger and the wise men and the shepherds, and we have this story, and we've almost, be, we've just so focused in on it, it's almost gotten divorced from its context, the greater biblical story. And so, I mean, if, if when we talk, when we think about Christmas in the Bible, obviously, you know, we turn to Matthew 1 or 2, or we turn to Luke uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, and that's where we go, and, and rightfully so. That's where we find the story of, of you know, baby Jesus in a manger, and Bethlehem, and, and Joseph and Mary, and, and all of those things, right? That is the Christmas story. And so the Christmas story becomes this wonderful, nice, cute story, okay? But the Christmas story is anything but nice and cute, and when we lose it from its, greater biblical, from its greater biblical significance, see, the Christmas story does not just stand on its own. It's not like you got the Old Testament is about some stuff, and then boom, the New Testament, and we've got Christmas, and it's this wonderful story, baby Jesus, and it's so cute. That's actually not how it works. The Christmas story is an important piece, but it's just a piece of a much bigger story that starts already in Genesis and moves on through to Revelation. We haven't seen the end of it yet until Jesus comes back. And unless we ground the story of Christmas in the context, not just as a story by itself, but in the context of, what, of the Bible's story, we lose a bunch of important things. We lose the urgency of it. We lose a lot of the whys. Like, why? Like, we don't even stop. Many of us, be, we just, Christmas has become its own thing. We don't ask why. Why would Jesus have to be born as a baby? Like, why would that have to happen? We lose the urgency of it. We lose the glory, God's glory in the whole thing of what's so amazing about God. It's this neat holiday, but we lose the amazingness. It's really spectacular. The reason why Christmas had to happen and some of the things God did at Christmas and being born as a baby, we lose some of that. And I want to bring some of that back in this, in this series. So um, I'm calling this first message Christmas in Genesis because the Christmas story starts in Genesis. And the roots of it are there. There's foreshadowings there. There's DNA there. The story of Christmas starts already in Genesis. It's just part of a much bigger story. And when we get into this, my, my goal is, my hope is at the end of this message, we're going to be filled with a sense of worship and a sense of God's glory and that this Christmas will have a new perspective of appreciation for what God has done. So let's pray and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you. 
It's a, it's a weak love sometimes. It's a distracted love sometimes. But we actually do love you. And as a church, we are, we are committing, we are pursuing you. And this Christmas, Jesus, I want us to grab a hold of what you did for us at a whole new level that we can sing and give you glory and really appreciate from the bottom of our hearts how amazing and brilliant and good you are. So would you keep us on track here this morning? Would you guide this message? Would you take the words I'm speaking? Would you put them deep into our hearts and would you fill us with hope and worship? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to start the Christmas story where it really starts. It doesn't, I mean, technically it kind of starts in Matthew or Luke, whichever one you want to look at. But really, the story story that Christmas is just a piece of starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Famous story, Garden of Eden. I'm going to read it to you. And we're going to start looking for Christmas in the book of Genesis. Genesis 3 verse 1 says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And technically, already, she's already exaggerating and, and, and changing a little bit what God had actually said. He did not say that they couldn't touch it. He just said they could not eat it. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Okay, so right there, I mean, it's obvious, but we don't often think about it. This is where the Christmas story starts. If you don't have a problem, you don't need a solution. You can't appreciate the solution of Christmas unless we root it in the fact that there was a problem to begin with. Otherwise, it's just a cute story. Okay? If we just look at Matthew and look, it's just cute. But if we ground this in Genesis, the only reason Jesus had to come was because there was a fall. There was a fall and there was a lot of brokenness that came with it. But we'll actually find more about Christmas here in Genesis chapter 3 because one of the things that just makes me want to worship God more and more as I meditate on this point is he's not surprised by this whole thing. He's not scrambling. It's not like Adam and Eve mess up and then God is like, oh boy, oh boy, what am I going to do? How am I going to punish them? How am I going to discipline them? See, as a parent, I get scrambling. I've got four kids. You know, you read a parenting book. They have all kinds of examples. If this happens, this. They have all kinds of things. And, of course, your kids never do those things. They do things that you never imagined that they would even think about. <laughs> and often we're left scrambling, right? It's like, uh, uh, and on, and, uh, you know, and in the moment you're scrambling to find the proper threats and the proper, you know, discipline that is going to bring this behavior into line. You're scrambling. You never expected it. What I love in Genesis 3 no scrambling on God's part. Absolutely, he saw this all along. And so right here in Genesis 3, incredible, 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 right after they've, like, the fall has just happened, and what we're going to see, I'm going to skip ahead a few verses, is we're going to see the entire plan of redemption, Christmas and Easter, all of it foretold in Genesis chapter 3. He's not scrambling. He's ahead of the game. He's not trying to figure things out on the go. He's already got it. And one of the most incredibly dense in terms of the scope of the prophetic declaration, in one verse, in one sentence, he's going to basically sum up in verse 15 the entirety of 
of Easter and Christmas, okay? So we're going to skip ahead a few verses. Verse 13, he's already got a solution in the works. Verse 13, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And now comes verse 15, and in one sentence, I mean just the glory of God in this one sentence, he's going to put Easter and Christmas all together in this one sentence. I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent or Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So obviously, again, this is a messianic prophecy. We've talked about this before. And he says this, this offspring of the woman is going to bruise the serpent's head. Now, we have to stop there for a moment because when we think of a, a head being bruised, you know, I think of one of my sons punching the other son in the head or something. It's like you get a little bruise, okay? Don't do that, okay? When he says that this offspring of the woman is going to bruise the head of the serpent, he's not talking about, you know, some kid just punches him in the head, he's going to get a bruise. He's talking about a crushing. Okay, he's going to stomp on the head of the serpent. He's going, to, he's going to conquer and be victorious over the serpent. Now, the interesting thing in this whole thing is at the same time that he crushes the serpent's head, the serpent is going to bite his heel. Okay? And so right here we see Easter. This is the cross, right? At the cross, Satan you know, took a poke at Jesus. Jesus was whipped. He was beaten. He was crucified. It was an awful thing. But ultimately, it wasn't fatal. In the moment, it looked like it was fatal. He died for three days, and then he rose. Eternally, it wasn't fatal. It was just a bite on the heel. But the very thing, the heel that he bit, the cross, was the very thing that Jesus used to stomp on his head. All here in Genesis chapter 3. And actually, one of the things that I really find really, really amazing with Genesis 3 is not only that God could fit in his brilliance and glory, that he could fit Easter and Christmas into one sentence in, right in Genesis chapter 3, right in the moment that they've sinned, but what's also so, so amazing about this is that he masks it. He masks it from Satan because Paul says in the New Testament, if Satan had known what Jesus was going to do at the cross, he would never have killed Jesus. So God puts it out there prophetically and yet masks it in such a way that Satan, who is brilliant himself, cannot figure it out. It's absolutely amazing. But now some of you are saying, well, okay, I see Easter there, but I don't see Christmas, all right? But Christmas is also here in very rudimentary form, very, the DNA of it. It says up there that it's going to be her offspring, that this promised one we don't have the lingo of Messiah yet, but this promised one is going to somehow trace his lineage through a woman. Now, this is very interesting because Moses is writing this book, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible and all the books of Moses. The genealogies are always traced through the male, through the man, through the father, okay? And that's true of the entire Old Testament. It was true of Jewish culture. That's just how things were done. You always chase, trace the genealogy through the man, through the father, through the male. But right here, Right away, Adam and Eve have just fallen, okay? Thousands of years before Christmas is going to happen, right in Genesis chapter 3, we already have the foreshadowing. God's not scrambling. He's not trying to figure things out on the go. We already have foreshadowings of the virgin birth. There's going to be something different about the promised one's birth. He's somehow going to be traced as her offspring, which is just fascinating, but there's more. There are ripples and parallels and foreshadowings of Christmas that echo throughout the book of Genesis, Okay, the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we're going to find out some more echoes again, some more hints, some more DNA of Christmas. 
And uh, we find this in Genesis 4, verse 1. It says this, Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, at first sight, it's like there's nothing too shocking there, and I don't see anything about Christmas there, except that there are four words there. I've underlined them there, with the help of the Lord. Those four words are not in the original Hebrew text, Okay. Those are additions in the English text, the translators trying to make more sense of something. They're not there in the original Hebrew. If we go to the, back to the original Hebrew, what the verse actually says is this, okay? It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and Darlene, if you could just put the next one, thank you, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man, and literally in the Hebrew text, the next thing it says is Yahweh. That's all it says, the name of the Lord. In, in our English Bibles, whenever you see Lord with the capitalized there, it means right there in the Hebrew is the, is the actual name of God, Yahweh. So what Eve is saying here, now this is absolutely fascinating. Eve somehow has gotten the idea that the boy she's given birth to is God himself born in the flesh. Now, where on earth did Eve get the idea that the answer to the curse in Genesis 3 was going to be God in the flesh? And she's right. Her theology is actually right. It is. Jesus is going to be the God-man. He's going to be Yahweh born in the flesh. Where did she get that idea already in Genesis chapter 4? We don't know, but she was looking forward to it. Now, of course, again, her theology was right. It would have to be a God-man to solve, to solve the problem of the curse. Uh, her application was a little wrong. I wonder how long it took her to figure out that Cain was not God, okay? Um, and he was not necessarily a good boy. I mean, he grew up to be a murderer. I think we see shades of her disillusionment, actually, in what she names her second son, which is Abel, which means vanity. And we're not talking about vanity in terms of, I like to look in the mirror what I look like. We're talking vanity in the sense of the, the writer of Ecclesiastes in terms of useless, meaningless. So we see shades of her disillusionment that she was expecting and looking for this promised Messiah and thought she had given birth to him. But by the second boy, she knows, and she's like, vanity, useless, uh, uh, meaningless. And of course, we can feel with her. We can feel with her. We actually need to put ourselves in Adam and Eve's shoes. See, all of us here today, we share something common, and all the human race since Adam and Eve, all of us were born into this broken, suffering, sinful world. We don't know any different. We don't know any different. All of us here were born into this world. So yes, we don't like the suffering and pain we go through. We don't like the sin, but we don't know any different. Isn't that true? We don't know any different. Adam and Eve are the only, uh, you know, exceptions from that rule in human history. They actually were born into a perfect world. Well, born, created into a perfect world. They actually lived. They actually tasted heaven. They got to live in the Garden of Eden. They got to have, live in this perfect place, in perfect communion, in physical communion with God. They lived in this amazing place. And then they know, so they know the sorrow of having been kicked out of that place and now having to live in a broken world like we do, but to know what it's like to live in something different and have been kicked out because of your own choice. So think of the torment that Adam and Eve went through the last, you know, the many hundreds of years of their lives, knowing what real life could be like, what heaven could be like, and knowing that now we live in this suffering, broken world. So you can see the yearning of Eve. The yearning of Eve that, oh, I would like to go back to that. And thank you, God, for this promise that you're going you're gonna to uproot. Like, we made the mess. One of the things, I think I talked about this in a message not that long ago, but one of the things I've been worshiping God about consistently over the last few months this fall, and it just keeps coming back to me. 
One of the things I regularly worship him for in my personal devotions is, is that I make the mess and he cleans them up. Adam and Eve made the mess. They disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. They got kicked out. And right away, he's got a promise. He says, I'm going to clean it up. And Eve and Adam are yearning for that cleaning up. We want to go back. And they were so hoping that Cain would be the first one. You can see the disappointment and the yearning. But this actually brings up a really, really good question. Brings up a really good question. Why did the promise have to take so long? Like, why couldn't, okay? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve screw up. They disobey. They eat the apple. They shouldn't have done it. Genesis 4, you know, God sends Jesus instead of Cain. He just gives, like, why couldn't he have done that? Genesis 4, we have the solution. Genesis 5, God comes back and sets up his kingdom here on earth. We've got a five-chapter Bible. It's a lot shorter. It's concise. And the whole thing is solved. Like, really, why couldn't have God done it? Like, Eve was expecting it. Eve wanted it. She was yearning for it. Why couldn't God have sent the Messiah right then with Cain? You know, send Jesus instead of Cain. Of course, these are always, it's always a little bit dangerous to ask why questions of God. And, and no doubt he's got many. I, I, I don't doubt that in eternity we will study and learn more and more and more of his reasons for why the timing of the things that he does. I, I just have no doubt about that. And there's many. And, and there's many that we can easily find in the scriptures. I thought of, while I was making this message, just I, I thought of nine or ten for sure. And there's many, many more I could have thought of. Um, so there's, I'm not, we're not going to look at an exhaustive list. But I just want to look at two reasons. And this is really important. It's really important for the Christmas story. I just want to look at two reasons why God makes the promise take so long. And the first one is this. The full wickedness of sin had to be revealed. The full wickedness of sin had to be revealed. The, the sinfulness of sin. The badness of bad. The wickedness of wicked, like how bad sin is, had to be revealed before God could send the solution. And this is for God's glory, and this is for eternity's sake. See, think about it like this. If Adam and Eve had eaten the apple, chapter 3, Genesis 4, God sends Jesus, Genesis 5, set up his kingdom on the earth, it's all over. For the rest of history, Satan and his angels and humankind We've had this niggling suspicion in the back of our heads, like, God, was that a bit of an overreaction? Like, really, cursing the earth, death, kicking them out of the garden? Was it really? Well, that seems like a bit of an overreaction, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem that way? Because if we think about what Adam and Eve did in and of itself, all they did was eat an apple. You ever think about that? I mean, now, time out, technically, because I know someone's going to talk to me about this. Technically, the Bible does not say it was an apple, Okay. Could have been a passion fruit. Could have been a banana. Mango. I don't know. Okay? Could have been a pine cone. I don't think so, though. All right? Um, it just says they ate the fruit of the tree. So, but, but I just like apple. That's what we go with. Okay? So let's just pretend it's an apple for the, for the purpose of this message. But, I mean, if you think about it, in and of itself, eating an apple isn't that bad. I mean, I, I don't doubt if we did a little survey here today, uh, many of you ate an apple or a piece of fruit this week. In and of itself, it's not that bad. Yet Adam and Eve, death, cursing the earth. Uh, it seems, so, you know, God sends a solution, Genesis 4. For the rest of eternity, we all kind of look at God and kind of go, well, what, what was that all about, right? 
And so God, one of the things he has to do is God has to let this play out in history to show us how big an issue this really is. Because the issue isn't really the apple. Yes, they disobeyed him. But the issue wasn't the eating of the apple itself. It's so much bigger than the apple. We just look at the external and say, what's the big deal? Like overreaction. But actually what it is, is it's the poisonous mindset beneath why they ate the apple. Why did they eat the apple? It's this pride mindset as human beings. Here's almighty God and he is all good. He is all loving and he knows all things and he actually knows what's best for us. And inside creeps this little poison of pride and we think to ourselves that we actually don't trust him. Maybe he's not good. I mean, just think of that, just like that. With someone so, so, so good and we harbor suspicions against him and then we think we can actually figure out good on our own. And so on the outside, it looks like, well, they just ate an apple, what's the big deal? But actually, the pride mindset underneath it is absolutely, utterly dark and evil. And so what God has to do is he has to let this play out. He's like, I have to show you that it's not just an apple. Because you think, it's just, you thought, I can eat that apple. God didn't want me to, but I think it's actually better for me to do it. You think that's not such a big deal because you think deep down, you know good apart from me. I'm going to let this play out in history. And I want to show you in the ebb and flow of human history, the utter sinfulness and the utter wickedness of thinking you can figure out good apart from me. And so this is, this is, and by the way, the same mindset, and we begin to see the fruit of it immediately. All Adam and Eve did was eat an apple. Their first kid, Cain, grew up to be a murderer. From eating an apple to murder one kid. This is the inevitable. This is exactly where it always ends up. To think we can do good apart from God, it always ends up in evil. This is Paul's whole argument in Romans 1. I'm just going to take you to Romans 1 now for a bit. I'm going to read you 15 verses from here. And Paul's going to make this very point powerfully. Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly the sin of Eden. People think they know better than God. And the moment people think they know better than God, exactly the thing that we think is wisdom, eat that apple, is actually foolishness. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. If ever there was a sentence or a phrase that describes our generation and society today, this has got to be the one. In terms of technology and science, we are smarter than ever before. I mean, really, our society is brilliant. Technologically, the things we've figured out, the things we've discovered, the science we're learning, it's unbelievable. And yet, all you have to do is read the news for 15 or 20 minutes on any given night of the week, and you are blown away by the utter foolishness of our society. The utter foolishness. Why would you make that decision? Why would you do that? Why would you make a law like that? Why would you? It's utter foolishness. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. See, Satan has a kind of wisdom that appeals to us as human beings. Technology and science, and we feel very smart. We get puffed up in our knowledge. But the moment you think you have knowledge apart from God, Adam and Eve look at the apple and say, it looks really good. And the moment they eat of it, it's death. 
its absolute death and suffering, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. And we're going to see this phrase over and over again in Romans chapter 1. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God gave them up. See, God doesn't just come in, you sin, and it's like, boom, you're going to hell. I'm going to punish you. No. In his goodness and mercy, he says, I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you have what you want. He doesn't come in and just stop Adam and Eve. They go to eat the apple. Don't do it. Don't do it. He says, if that's what you want, I'm going to let you have what you want, and we can play this out to see where this leads. God gave them up. So he gives our society up. He gives us up. He didn't just come in and judge us right away. He says, I'm going to let you play this out. You, that's what you want. You can have what you want so you can see that I know best. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You want to do that? I'll let you do that. I told you it wasn't good for you, and I'm infinitely good and knowing and loving, but now you can find out for yourself how wicked it is, how evil and dark it is to do what I've said is not good. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God gave them up. This is history. This is starting in Eden. This is what you want. You want to see life, what life is like when you figure it out instead of me? I'll let you have what you want. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty. I mean, he's on a roll now, right? Boastful, inventors of evil. I love that one. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so Paul's verdict in Romans 1 is that apart from God, mankind is not good. See, the root pride mindset, Adam and Eve, is that apple looks good. It really isn't that bad. I know God said it's bad, but it can't be bad. I look at this, it's not bad. And God has been proving in history ever since, and we see it in Romans 1, is that apart from God, man, it is impossible. Even when mankind, when we try to be good, if we try to be good apart from God, it always ends up evil. We actually need utter dependency on God at all times and all things. And just, you know, just a quick perusal through history. I mean, you just got to take a quick and look at some of the most notorious examples, even just from the last century, to see that when human beings try to do good without God, it always turns out evil. I mean, we go back just over a century, and just, we're going to vastly oversimplify some things here in history, and we're just going to take some quick skips. But we look just over a century ago, uh, the, the communist revolution there in, the, in what became the Soviet Union, in Russia, it became the Soviet Union, Okay. Now, those people, the communists, that when they started that revolution, they didn't just get up in the morning and say, let's start a movement where we're going to end up killing, literally, not hundreds of thousands, not millions, but tens of millions of our own people. 
They don't just get up and just go door to door. Young people, join our movement. We're going to kill millions and millions of our own people. That's not how they, they didn't get up thinking to do evil. Do you, and now, again, vastly, I'm just warning you, vast oversimplification of, of history here a little bit, okay? But do you know that basically, if you boiled it down, what they wanted to do? They wanted to share. They wanted to get rid of the gap, the wealth gap, the inequality between the rich and the poor. By the way, does that just not sound a little bit familiar these days? History just repeats itself over and over and over again. There's nothing new under the sun. They said, we're going to get rid of the, the gap between the, the rich and the poor. Now, is that bad to help poor people? Absolutely not. They said, and we're going to do it by sharing. We're going to have a whole country that is based and a whole movement based on sharing. Now, here's the thing. How can any movement that is based on sharing be bad? I mean, isn't sharing amazing? Some of you, you don't, maybe don't think so. It, <laughs> It's really good. I have four kids. I'm caught. Share, right? Stop doing that and share. I mean, sharing. How can a group of people who just want everybody to share so that there's no poor people left, how can a movement like that turn bad? Well, they got rid of God. They said religion is part of the way that the masses have been oppressed. So we're going to get rid of God and we're going to force people to share. And the end result, so they started out with ultimately a good intention, but without God, it turned into a bloodbath. And less than a century later, when communism fell in 1989 in the Soviet Union, all those places, the very masses of poor people that they had aimed to free rejoiced that their oppression was over when it was done. Mankind, when we try to be good apart from God, we end up in utter wickedness. I mean, Nazi Germany, another notorious example. The German people didn't wake up one day, an entire nation, and say, let's do hideous, horrible things. I mean, again, there's lots of different factors going on, different things happening. But I mean, one of the things the Nazi party believed in was Charles Darwin's theory of evolution. And so one of their driving motivations is we actually want to improve the human race. We want to make people live longer and be healthier and be smarter. And all the, they had this ideal of a, of a family of healthy, strong, vital. So ultimately, those don't seem like very bad goals. We want to help the human race. We want to help people be healthier and happier. But we're going to throw God to do it. And what, when we're going to do it using evolutionary theories, the way to help people is to get rid of undesirables and, in the, and with a desire that is basically not bad to want people to be healthier and to live longer and all that sort of stuff, suddenly became one of the most notorious, wicked periods of time in all of human history. And we could go on and on and on. It's not just the Nazis and the communists. There's many examples we could think of in modern times. I mean, abortion. Many of the people who support abortion, a lot of their thinking has to do with we want to help women. We want to help women who are poor. We want to help women with rights, all sort of stuff. And so they have maybe a desire that ultimately started somewhere maybe good, and yet behind them is a mountain of dead babies, and they can't see that it's evil. When mankind tries to be good apart from God, it always ends up evil. And the ebb and flow of history on Judgment Day, we're not going to be able to stand before God. God says, I'm not going to send a Messiah in chapter 4 because for the rest of history, you're still not going to trust me. You're still going to think you know better. But on Judgment Day, the human history, the timeline of human history is going to be for God's vindication and glory and proof that apart from him, nothing is good. And we may think it's just the eating of an apple and it might not look that bad on the external, but to think we can figure it out on our own always ends up in the darkest of blackness. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, I don't like this Christmas message very much. It's not nice. <laughs> Why are we talking about these things at 
Christmas. Christmas messages should make us feel happy and warm. And that's because we've made the Christmas story into this thing where the thing we want to get out of it is warmth. But we've taken it out of its context. See, the Christmas story is not a warm story. It was born in blood. What was one of the very first things that Christmas caused? I'll tell you, one of the first things that Christmas caused was the murderous death of all the baby boys two years and younger in the town of Bethlehem. If God had wanted things nice, he wouldn't have sent Jesus to be born into a manger there because there was a whole bunch of mothers and fathers that went through unimaginable anguish as a direct result of Christmas. The Christmas story is not nice. It was, the first, it was the first big stage of God's battle plan to smash Satan and his evil forces. It was born in blood. It's part of a much bigger battle. But there's actually more to the Christmas story in Genesis. And I wonder how many of you knew that Noah's dad, in Genesis, throughout, we have these people who are earnestly seeking for the curse to be reversed, and they want the Messiah, even though they don't have the, the terminology Messiah yet. In Genesis chapter 5, we read this about Noah's dad. Noah's dad's name uh, was Lamech. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest. So the name Noah means rest. This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands, arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Rising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. He's referring back to the curse in Genesis 3. And again, Lamech's theology is correct. He's correct that the promised one, the offspring of a woman, is going to reverse the curse and heal nature and all of that sort of stuff. He's correct. He's wrong in the application that it's his son, Noah. Now, how did Lamech get the idea that his son, Noah, would be the Messiah? I really believe he had a sense from the Holy Spirit that something special was going to happen with Noah because if we think about it, Noah was, in a sense, a foreshadowing of Christ. He was a foreshadowing, a type, a, 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 a you know, prophetic person of the Messiah in the future because, in a sense, Noah saved the human race. By going onto the ark, and surviving, Noah saved the human race. So in a way, he's a parallel to Christ, but he wasn't the promised one, okay? And this brings up a third thing we learn from Genesis and the Noah story that's important for Christmas, and that is this. You can't fix the problem of evil by killing all the bad people and starting over. You can't fix the problem of evil by killing all the bad people and starting over. But isn't this deep down how many of us as human beings think? I mean, we'll, everything will be fixed. If we just get the bad leader out and the good leader in, everything will be fixed. Well, yeah, we do want good leaders, and we pray for good leaders, and we vote for good leaders, and all that sort of stuff. But we have this idea. That's all part of the same thinking. If I just change the leaders, if we get rid of the bad people, I mean, if you just kill God, if you just you know, get rid of all the terrorists and the corrupt government officials and people who utterly reject and hate you, if you just get rid of all the bad people, then all of the world's problems will be solved. But the flood is God's proof that you can't solve the problem of evil by getting rid of all the bad people. Because isn't that exactly what happened at the flood? This is one of the big lessons of the flood, and it's so, you're going to see in just a few moments, how this totally ties in to why Christmas was needed. Okay? Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And here's a sad statement, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, 
So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this makes sense to us, right? And of course, God knew. God knew this whole plan all along. He knew what was going to happen and not happen. But the flood is there as a lesson to us. Because we look at this and we go, absolutely, let's reboot the human race. Let's just restart. Get rid of all the evil ones and start over with a really good man. Okay? Well, next verse, verse 8. Noah's the guy, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah is the perfect guy to reboot the human race with, isn't he? He's blameless. He's righteous. He walks with God. Like, this makes sense. I mean, we're all sitting here going, this has to make sense. Get rid of the evil people. Start fresh with Noah. You know, reboot with him and his family. Things are good. This is how you solve the problem of evil. You just judge the evil people. And yet, what do we find just three verses after the end of the flood? What do we find just three verses? Some of you are already thinking, you're oh boy, right? Three verses after the flood. Well, let's go, let's, let's, let's go look at this. Genesis chapter 9, let's start with the happy ending. God and Noah are having this moment. It's covenant time, rainbows, you know, happy things. When the rainbow is in the clouds, I, that's God, will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. <gasps> happy ending. <sighs> it worked. We rebooted the human race. We got rid of all the bad people. We started afresh with a guy who was righteous, blameless, and who walks with me. Great start. Him and his family. Start over. It's all going to be good. Okay? Three verses later. Verse 20. Okay? Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Okay? He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So that's kind of sketchy. So we just rebooted the human race. We just killed all the bad people to start over, okay? And we started over with a righteous, blameless guy who walks with God. And the next thing we know, he's lying naked in his tent. And it gets worse. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, a lot of people really question this part of the story. It's like, I don't know what's so bad. It's Noah's fault for being naked in his tent. I don't know why it's so bad that Ham just goes in and sees him and goes out. Uh, experts in Old Testament, uh, commentators and stuff like that, experts in the, in the original language and stuff, are, all, are, are quite certain that he didn't just see. It's in, it's in the language there that most likely some form of, of incestuous sexual abuse happened here. And so you go, oh, like we're three ver... We just rebooted the whole human race. And right away, we are totally screwed up. And within three or four generations of Noah, okay, he's going to curse his son Canaan. So this just gets ugly in the family, okay? Within three or four generations of Noah, the entire earth, which is all Noah's descendants, have unified together in open rebellion against God at the Tower of Babel. And so we see you can try and you can kill off all the bad people and start over with a good man and his family and you still have the same problem. Why? Because the problem of evil isn't just in the bad people, it's deep inside of each of us. You, I mean, we look at this pain and we go, well, I wouldn't have done that. If you would have started over with me, it wouldn't have looked like that. Like, we're not, that's sick. Oh, really? 
See, we like to read these stories, and we like to look at Noah and go, that, what a sickle. Like, that's really gross. And Ham, a yuck. That's gross. But actually, they just got their worst stuff written into the pages of the Bible. I bet you if God would come up here right now and start writing down on the screen for us, and you just start picking people out of here, and he just starts writing down our worst, most shameful, embarrassing, the things we've said or done or seen, we would all be fleeing the back doors as fast as we can. If God put the worst of our lives on the page of this book and put it beside Noah, we just forget it. When we read about Noah, we go, ooh. But actually, if he brought up our junk, it would be, oh, it, Noah wouldn't look so bad. Why? Because the problem of evil, you can't get rid of the problem of evil just by killing all the bad people because the problem of evil is deep inside all of us. It's deep, deep inside. And so Adam and Eve, it didn't look that bad. And you say, well, I don't, I don't want to murder people. I don't want to do all sorts of stuff. With Adam and Eve, it just looked like I want to eat an apple. But the moment mankind ceases to trust God and we want to do our own thing, it becomes utterly wicked and evil. And I know even as we sit there, many of us don't feel the weight of it. We don't feel the weight of it. Well, no, that's not true, Chris. Like, I, I don't have to depend on God every day. There's lots of things I can choose, and I can be a relatively nice person. You don't realize it's that mindset that leads to murder and perversity and all that. That's exactly the point of the Genesis story. All they took was an apple, and look where it leads. You can tell that we don't get it, because even as Christians, how many of us spend how many of our days not in dependency of the Lord? How many of us, myself included, we go through day after day and there's not this sense of, oh Jesus, I need you today. That's because we think we can actually pull it off on our own, which is exactly what Adam and Eve thought and it's exactly the cause of all of our problems. You can't even solve these problems. So not only can you not solve the problem by killing all the bad people and starting over with someone righteous, you also can't solve this problem by fixing all the environment and the circumstances around us. Our society today totally thinks if we can just fix poverty, if we can just fix drugs, if we can just get better education, we're going to solve people's problems. Well, first of all, amen, we should fight poverty and we should fight drugs and we should help with education because we love people. But if you think fighting poverty solves the problem of evil, you have no understanding of the problem of evil because poor people and rich people are just as evil. There have been many poor people throughout history who have lived wonderful lives, and there's been many rich people in history who have lived awful lives. You solve poverty, you can help people, and yes, out of compassion, we should do that. Poverty doesn't solve problems. You can't solve evil by fixing environmental factors. That's also in the book of, of Genesis. That's the whole point of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were good people who had never sinned. They had no inner woundedness. They had no inner struggles, anything like that. And they were put in a perfect environment and they still disobeyed God. Because deep down, the wickedness is inside of us that I think I know better than God and I think I can be good apart from God. That's the problem with evil. You can't solve it by fixing the environment. You can't solve it by getting rid of all the evil people. You can't even fix it with forgiveness. Forgiveness only solves the problem of punishment. So you forgive me, I don't have to be punished for my sin, but I can turn around and I can still be evil. Forgiveness doesn't fix the problem of evil, it just fixes the problem of punishment. So the question is, how on earth do you fix the problem of evil? You can't do it by getting rid of all the bad people. You can't do it by fixing the environment. You can't do it just by forgiving us. How does God fix the problem of evil? And this is where Christmas comes in. It's a radical solution. 
You have to change people from the inside out. Now, how do you change a human being from the inside out? God has already made us human. He's not going to turn us into angels. We're not God, so we're not divine. How do you change a human being and keep them a human being? How do you change a human being and keep them a human being? So God had a radical solution, and he had it already buried deep in the prophetic DNA. In Genesis chapter 3, he was not scrambling. The way you solve the problem of evil, there is only one way, and it's a radical solution, is God himself must be born into human flesh and take on a fully human nature so that he can pass on to us his human nature. See, at the resurrection, when we get Christ's nature, we're not going to be more angelic or less human than we are now. We will be every bit as human as we are right now. In fact, if anything, we would be more human than we are right now. We will be all human, and yet we'll be unable to sin because we'll have his nature and he is unable to sin. And that's the power of Christmas. It's not just cute. Oh, that's cute. Baby Jesus. Like, it's so neat that he did that. See, many, and especially Mennonites, one of the big things we do in this community, we think the reason Jesus had to be born as a baby is so he could empathize with us. Well, amen. That is part of the reason. I love that. But we think the whole reason Jesus had to be a human is so he could feel with us. So now when I feel bad, I, I can feel comforted because Jesus feels bad with me. Well, amen. That's actually a wonderful truth. I love it. But that is the, the real reason he had to become human. Is this? It has to be a radical solution to the problem of evil. We have to get a new nature that is still human. So he had to come, be fully human, live a perfect and sinless life, and then die a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins so he could pass on to us a new nature. And this is where we'll, we will be light years ahead. It's a difference of night and day between us and Adam and Eve in the garden. See, lots of Christians, I think, are nervous. They think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they think, wow, if they could sin in a perfect place like that, maybe I'm going to sin in heaven. Like, just give me enough time, and I'm going to sin, and I'm going to get kicked out and put in hell. I think a lot of people carry the weight of that nervousness. But the difference is this. Adam and Eve didn't have Jesus' nature. But we're going to literally at the resurrection get Jesus' nature. And so I'm going to finish with this scripture. We're going to go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. So you can give a rule. You can give a law. But our inward desire is to not trust God, and so we'll just disobey it. You can tell Adam and Eve, don't eat from the fruit of that tree. It's a perfectly reasonable rule. He gives it to them. Of course, they go and eat from it. You give Moses the Ten Commandments. And of course, we look at it and we go, it makes total sense. Those are wonderful laws. We love you, God, and we can't keep them. So God had to do something more than just give us more rules. He had to do something besides just give us the law. The law weakened by the flesh couldn't do it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. That's Christmas. He had to get born in the likeness of sinful flesh with a 100% human nature. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is Christmas. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He didn't just forgive it. He overcame it. He took on a human nature and dominated sin and said, I don't want it. I can't have it. I love Jesus and I love God's laws. And now you can have that nature too and condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Not only that we would be forgiven, but that the law would come alive in us. 
The most important command in the entire law is Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. But in the flesh, we can't love him. But when we get Christ's nature, we love. We'll be fully human, but we'll be in love with God, and we'll trust him, which is the difference, going to be the difference between us and Adam and Eve. Might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the fulfillment of this promise will be at the resurrection. But the great thing is, because of the deposit and the down payment of his spirit in us today, we can already begin to taste this transformation today. By walking with the Holy Spirit and depending on him today, we can, yes, we still have the flesh in us, so there's this war, but we can begin to experience this inner transformation that changes us. We're not just people trying to overcome evil, but we actually become changed into his likeness inside of us. So I don't have a weekly challenge today. All I want to do is just thank Jesus. That's why we needed Christmas. So I want to thank him, and I want us to worship him with a true appreciation that, that springs from our, deep in our hearts as we sing right after this as well. But I want you just to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you for the brilliance of your plan. Thank you, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that you would take on human flesh so that we can take on a new human nature that no longer desires sin or is even able to sin. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you for the hope of your spirit inside of us today to begin to experience this today. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you this Christmas. And I pray that a true appreciation for you and for Christmas would take root deep in our hearts. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.